what a crew you are. You look so ready to go. Are you stoked? Man, I am. I'm ready to go. It's good to see you guys. Some of you are already pumped up on caffeine. You've already, man, you're ready to go. You're so psyched. Let's get on this journey together. Today, we look at a passage from Matthew 5. Buckle your seatbelt. It's revolutionary. Now, here's what you'll learn. People who've never even read the Bible know some of the phrases that appear in today's passage because Jesus talks about things like turning the other cheek, going the second mile, loving your enemies. Even people who've never been to church, they know some of those phrases because they've worked their way into our culture even though a lot of folks don't know where they came from. But I want you to understand up front that today's passage, while it's wonderful and revolutionary, and it's so vital to the Christian life, it is easily misunderstood. So before we dive in verse by verse, I want to share with you two principles that we need to consider before diving into these verses. The first principle is this. This passage is speaking to individual disciples, Now, if you read the start of Matthew 5, you'll see how that happened. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. And then it says, his disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, and then it launches into the teaching. And then at the end of chapter 7, when the sermon is wrapped up, again, you see that the crowds were amazed at his teaching, but make no mistake, this teaching is for disciples of Jesus and no one else. Now, why is that important? You need to remember that later on when you'll hear things like, don't resist an evil person or turn the other cheek. Jesus is not giving a prescription here for how national or state governments ought to be run. Jesus is not speaking today to the job description of law enforcement officers. Now, if you want to learn about that and how God thinks and feels about those issues, you need to go to places like Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, or or 1 Peter chapter 2, and many other places. That'll give you God's perspective on those issues, okay? But this is addressing individual disciples. It's not talking about our country's prison system or how strong a military a nation ought to have, or any of that stuff, Jesus is talking about how individual disciples respond to some of the difficult people in their lives. And and I stress that up front, because if you don't understand that, uh, you may come to some unfortunate, even, yes, ridiculous conclusions based on today's teaching. That's the first principle. The second principle I want you to consider is this. To interpret this passage well, you need some sanctified common sense. Sanctified common sense. Now, I've learned through the years that common sense isn't all that common, right? Have you you discovered that to be true? The things that you think, well, doesn't everybody know that? No, they don't know that. So, I find you can't take a lot of things for granted. But, but I'm not even talking about common sense here. I'm talking about this phrase, sanctified. Sanctified common sense. In one word, 
That means wisdom. For the disciple of Jesus, that means that you've learned how to compare Scripture with Scripture because you know that the Bible is its own best interpreter, okay? And so when you're reading through the, the Bible and you come to a passage, you never absolutize that one passage and go, that, that's the only passage that's gonna drive my thinking on that. No, no, you realize that probably Scripture has numerous other passages that help illuminate whatever issue it is that you're talking about, all right? So where does this sanctified common sense come from? It comes from spending some time in the Bible. It comes from having a mind, a worldview that is carefully shaped and informed by Scripture and by what Scripture says on all kinds of issues, and that helps guide you to conclusions. So, as we walk through this passage today, I want you to know I'm gonna keep coming back to those two principles. I'm gonna keep reminding you today that this is for individual disciples who are faced with difficult decisions as they encounter challenging people in their lives and that it requires some sanctified common sense in order to apply this. And that common sense comes from the whole counsel of God. So with that as a base, let's dive in and get going on our journey here. Matthew chapter five, starting in verse 38. You've heard it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, this eye for eye teaching, if you wanna read about its background, you can go to places like Leviticus chapter 24. You can go to Exodus chapter 21. You can go to Deuteronomy chapter 19. We're, we're not gonna go there now. We don't have time. But you can read on your own what the original context was of this teaching. Here's what it was meant to limit. It was meant to limit the escalation of revenge and violence. Because see, here's how life works, right? Right? you know that if somebody hits you, you're gonna hit them back and even harder. That's just the way we work in our human nature. You know that if somebody hurts you, you wanna hurt them back, but not in the same way. You wanna do even more to kind of put them in their place and teach them a lesson. And so what you end up with in society is this escalating cycle of revenge, and that's where tribal warfare comes from. As one group keeps striking back, that's where gang warfare comes from. And, and in its worst case, it actually goes on through the generations. That's where you get the Hatfields and McCoys, okay, which lived in the Appalachian region of the U.S. And, and literally kept this revenge thing going on from generation to generation. So the eye for eye teaching was meant to limit that. Look, somebody knocks your tooth out, you can have one of their teeth knocked out, but no more. It's a system of exact retribution. And here's an important part. Listen, listen, you couldn't do that yourself. You couldn't take matters into your own hands and do that. You couldn't get a group of vigilantes and show up at a person's house and say, hey, we're here for an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, baby. No, no, it was meant to be administered through the judicial system of Israel. And that is a very important point. 
You don't take matters into your own hands. So, in today's teaching, Jesus is not trying to abolish the judicial system. He's not trying to say, hey, you don't need a police force to resist evil people. Jesus knows that that would simply lead to anarchy. You can't even have a society like that, all right? Jesus is saying to individual disciples, look, when someone disrespects you, don't be so quick to get your ire up. Don't be so quick to demand your rights. Let mercy triumph over judgment. As my disciple, your number one concern should not be your own dignity or your pride. In fact, you're supposed to be dead to that, by the way. Your number one concern as my disciple should be the good of that other person. But only sanctified common sense is gonna lead you to that. I don't know if you've heard the story of Marjorie Perkins, who lives in Brunswick, Maine. True life story, just happened two and a half weeks ago. On July, the morning of July 26, 2 a.m., she awakened to a young teenage man standing over her and he threatened to cut her. Now, did Marjorie say, well, Jesus said, don't resist an evil person. Hey, I got an evil person here, uh, so I guess I shouldn't do anything about this, whatever. I shouldn't do anything to defend myself. No, that's not what Marjorie did. Thankfully, Marjorie's attitude was, if he's gonna cut, I'm gonna kick. That's literally what she said later as she was interviewed. And she defended herself, even though she got some blows to the cheek and the forehead. She finally got a chair between the two of them and so on. And Marjorie, because her attacker said he was hungry, she actually fed him some peanut butter and crackers. Now, don't let this be a template for how you ought to handle every situation. I'm just telling you what Marjorie did, and it worked out really great, all right? She gave him a couple of protein drinks. She probably realized this is a very disturbed young man. She knew he had been drinking pretty heavily. And as he was leaving, she called 911. The police quickly found the young man, arrested him. He's been charged with several crimes. Now, in my opinion, Marjorie showed a good deal of wisdom here. I don't believe that Jesus meant for us to, in every case, literally turn the other cheek and let someone strike us again. What he's after here is an attitude of non-retaliation. The closest equivalent to being slapped on your right cheek in that it was an act of disrespect more than an act of violence. You did it with the back of your hand. The closest in our culture would be the one-finger salute, okay? That would be the closest equivalent to that or being called some vile name. So when you're insulted like that, Jesus says, look, don't be so quick to strike back. Don't seek revenge and retaliate when personal insults come like that. I'm looking for disciples who are living above that kind of petty stuff. You know who you are. See the person who does that as the dupe of Satan. That's all they are, just a sinner acting like a sinner. There's a story about an Irish evangelist who before coming to Christ was a professional boxer and a quite good one, actually. But uh, as he 
moved on beyond his boxing career, and he became this evangelist who would go set up tents in various meetings across the country of Ireland, and he would preach the gospel. And so the story goes, he was setting up a tent in one of the towns, and some other Christians were helping him. They were getting ready for the meeting that night, and some local hoodlums came along and began to heckle him and mock him. And one of the more strong guys among them came up and hit him on the cheek and knocked him down. Now, all the bystanders who knew about his background as a ferocious boxer wondered what would happen next. The evangelist brushed himself off, got up, went over to the young man and literally turned the other cheek. The guy hit him again, knocked him down again. At this, the evangelist got up, rolled up his sleeves and said, the Lord has given me no further instruction. Wow. <laughs> and he literally beat the guy up. Now, we love stories. We love stories about bullies being put in their place, don't we? We love it when Clint Eastwood says, go ahead, punk, make my day, right? We love those stories about the bad guys getting what is coming to them. But in all honesty, this passage, these words of Jesus raise some tough, practical questions that are not always the easiest to answer. But for instance, what should a wife do whose husband is abusing her? Should she literally turn the other cheek? Go, hit me again. I'm a follower of Jesus. Jesus said, hit me again. Just turn the other cheek. Absolutely not. She should get herself out of that situation, out of harm's way. She should demand that her husband repent and prove himself transformed and trustworthy before putting herself in a situation like that again. When Jesus' enemies threatened to throw him over a cliff, he didn't just say, whatever, whatever. Hey, I'm teaching everybody, don't resist an evil person, so hey, I gotta follow my own teaching. No, Jesus worked his way through the crowd. He didn't allow them to abuse him. He walked through the crowd and went some other place. Jesus is not telling us here to let people just abuse us. Now, at this point, again, there are dozens of practical examples that we could roll out if we had the time, but it would take us hours to do. But every one of them requires sanctified common sense in order to make the wisest choice. But here's the thing that should drive it. As a disciple of Jesus, you're always doing it with love. Here's what love does. Love looks out for the good of the other person and the honor of God, not just your own pride. And friends, that is a tall order for many of us. Because even though we call ourselves followers of Jesus, the truth is, we still haven't died to ourselves, and we quickly get our ire up when someone disrespects us. So this is a powerful message today from the Lord Jesus. We need to move on. Verse 40 addresses a whole different issue. What do we do when someone brings a minor lawsuit against us? Ah, verse 40. If someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, the tunic was the undergarment. Most people had a few of those at least, okay? It's like an undergarment that you wore. The cloak was your outer garment. And 
Exodus chapter 22, it said that you could not sue a person for their cloak because especially if you were poor, that often served as a blanket at night. If that's all a person had, they were considered bankrupt, basically. But Jesus says here, look, if someone wants to get that petty, they wanna take your tunic, you let them have your cloak as well. You have a right to that cloak, but sometimes disciples choose to voluntarily set aside and lay aside your rights if you believe it would be for the good of somebody else. Again, most disciples I know don't think this way. Most disciples I know, not everyone, thankfully. In fact, there's so many at Grace that thank God, get it. They're totally living this way. But most people I know who profess to be Christians, they're immediately concerned about their, oh, I've got my rights here. They're immediately concerned about their rights before anything else. You talk about a teaching that gets in our face, this one does. In a litigious society like ours, wow. We're not quick to think about the good of others and what might lead to their salvation. We're not quick to put aside our own rights. But again, it's so important you understand that Jesus is talking here about petty civil matters. He's not saying that Christians are not allowed to participate in the criminal justice system. If you're accused of a serious crime and you're innocent of that crime, by all means, my goodness, you should defend yourself. The apostle Paul did. We see in the book of Acts more than once he defended himself in a court of law. If your husband abandons you and refuses to pay child support, is negligent in that, It is not wrong for you to inform the authorities. In fact, you should. You're simply providing for your children. Use sanctified common sense. If someone steals from you, or heaven forbid, they abuse one of your children, oh my goodness, you are obligated to tell authorities and to appear in court as a witness. To do otherwise would not be loving your own child or your neighbors who could be the next victims. Or if you've been treated unjustly and are due some appropriate amount of compensation, let the legal process take its course. It is not inherently wrong to engage in a lawsuit. You say, but but pastor, what is Jesus saying here? Don't insist on your rights on petty civil matters. As he said earlier in chapter five, the best way to handle a lot of lawsuits is just diffuse it early. I like the way Eugene Peterson paraphrased this. He said, look, if someone sues you for the shirt off your back, gift wrap your best coat and make a present of it. Jesus is looking for a spirit here that is not just demanding our own rights. God has been so merciful to you, so let mercy triumph over judgment. But then he goes on in verse 41, and he talks about those times when people make inconvenient demands of you. Do you have any people in your life like that? People who kind of demand things of you? If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. 
Now, the Roman soldier had the right to do this under Roman law. They could press a civilian into service. It started with the postal system. They could force a civilian to carry the mail for one mile, but no further. But it later moved into other things. You may remember that the soldiers pressed into service Simon of Cyrene when Jesus stumbled beneath the weight of the cross. They had Simon carry his cross. This is an example of what I'm talking about. They deputized him in that moment to carry that load. But there were limits to this. You had to go one mile, but no further. And you can imagine the attitude that people had about this. I mean, can, can you imagine if that were in place today? I mean, people would gripe and curse every step of the way that they had to do, to do this. I think Jesus is saying, going the extra mile with people, having a positive attitude about it can make a huge impact on them. Because all of us, every single one of us has someone in authority over us. And if those people in authority over you that you're accountable to, if they love that authority, and if they're enamored with their power, Let's face it, they can make life miserable for you. And it's easy for us to resent that. So how do we respond to people like that in our lives? I think our goal, our goal is to represent Jesus well. Let's suppose that your supervisor at work kind of is enamored with her authority. And, 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 and one day, she, late in the day, she gives you an assignment to work late and work on a project. And, and honestly, you don't have a prior commitment, so you're not breaking anything by working late. What are you gonna do? Instead of mumbling about it and complaining, if you say, oh, I'd be glad to, and you do the work, and you do it with excellence, and you send the report on the computer, and you put some other things on her desk, and you put a little note there, thanks for your leadership of this company. I'm so grateful for the excellence that you desire. Hope you have a great day. Congratulations on your daughter making the all-state swim team. Now, what is she gonna do? She's probably gonna give you a raise. Say, no, you don't know my boss. Well, maybe not, but maybe as she sees this attitude in you, it may begin to erode some of that attitude that she has. But there are limits to this. If your boss asks you to lie, to do something unethical, do not do that. You belong to Jesus. That allegiance supersedes all other allegiances. You have a right to confront and not just be run over. When Paul was about to be whipped in the book of Acts, he said, wait a minute, I'm a Roman citizen. You don't have a right to whip a Roman citizen like this. And he was correct, and they backed off. Yes, you have rights too. You have the right to work at another company. If you can't be supportive of your supervisor, then move on to another job or choose a different school. But followers of Jesus are to have an attitude of going the second mile and doing above and beyond what the average person would do. And then in verse 42, Jesus gives yet another illustration of what we are to do with a needy person who asks 
something of us. Let's look at it. Boy, this is radical, isn't it? Give to the one who asks you. And do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Wow, how do we apply that? Does this mean that the Christian is responsible to shell out money to every professional beggar or to pay for the drug that is ruining a person's life just because they ask you to? Many of you are faced with this every day. Driving here today to church before eight o'clock, there were beggars already out on the streets. This has become more and more common since the pandemic. So what are we to do? Dr. Don Carson, one of the commentaries that I'm reading along with this series, tells the true story. He's an eminent New Testament scholar. He tells about the years he was at Cambridge University. And he said there was a student there at Cambridge, a brand new Christian, who had a very tender heart. And he read this teaching of Jesus and he wanted to follow it to the letter with a strict literalism. And he said, I am committed to give to everyone who asks me. And he said there were a number of people out on the streets, a number of alcoholics who lived out right around the edges of Cambridge. And when they found out about this young man's tender heart and his desire to give to everyone who asked him, they kept asking. They virtually stalked this young man and kept asking for money for booze and he kept giving it. And in his desire to obey Jesus, every time they asked, he kept giving. And Dr. Carson says this young student who had very little to begin with literally went bankrupt as he supplied a half a dozen men with alcohol. Alcohol they would have been better without. Hey, is that what Jesus had in mind here? Just indiscriminate giving. Don't even think, disciples. I don't want you to use your brain. I don't want any sanctified common sense whatsoever. I want you to give literally whatever anybody asks. I hope you know better. Let's go back to the original principles. Sanctified common sense. Jesus is assuming that his disciples have a worldview a sanctified common sense that has been well-shaped and well-informed by the whole counsel of God. That was not the case with this young Cambridge student. If it was, he would have known that sometimes helping hurts. If he had that sanctified common sense, he would have known that there are situations you will face in your life, pretty common ones actually, where what looks on the surface like a loving act is actually hurting more than helping. And thankfully, this young man was eventually helped by some of his fellow students who showed him that while his actions were well intended, they were neither helping himself nor these men, and they certainly weren't honoring Christ. You say, but wait a minute, pastor. Jesus said, give to the one who asks you. And from the one who wants to borrow, don't turn away. How am I supposed to apply that? Again, with sanctified common sense. So when someone asks you for a handout, sure, there are times when you should buy a meal for that beggar in the street. Make sure they've got something to eat. And there are times when you should give a practical gift, maybe a coat, maybe some clothing. 
something like that. Absolutely do that. And if a neighbor's lawnmower breaks and you have one, let them use yours. Of course you do. And listen, if you've got stuff that you think could be helpful to somebody else that you know, don't even wait for them to ask. Just offer it to them if you sense that it might be helpful to them. That's the spirit that Jesus is really asking for here. But I hope you're still listening. If someone is asking you to fund an illegal drug habit, hey, Jesus said give. If they're asking you to fund a lifestyle that refuses to work when they're fully capable, if they're asking you to fund a wicked lifestyle, do not do that. You're not honoring Jesus when you do that. Use sanctified common sense. Love always looks out for the good of the other person, but love requires wisdom. Ooh, that's a biggie. Love requires wisdom. That's why we have to have sanctified common sense in order to know how best to love people. By the way, parents, woo, this is big for parenting. You don't give your children everything they ask for, do you? Oh, my goodness. That'd be, that'd be chaos. You'd, you'd not only spoil them, you would destroy them if you did that. No, as wise parents, you use some kind of common sense mechanism, don't you? Of course. And by the way, when people ask the church for handouts, for money, and that kind of thing, we don't just indiscriminately give money out. Now, some people try to create guilt trips, go, oh, you're so hard-hearted. No, we've got sanctified common sense. We know that in most cases, those handouts that are asked for are not gonna go for something that's truly helpful and redemptive. We know they're gonna be used on other things. And so we use sanctified common sense. We ask a lot of questions and we don't grant every request that is brought. But now Jesus comes to an even more challenging situation when he talks about how we respond toward our enemies. Woo, this really gets fun. You've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. By the way, the Old Testament never says hate your enemy. Never does. In the Qumran community, you may have heard of the Essene community that lived down around the Dead Sea. As you study the materials that were found in Qumran back in, I think, the 1940s, if you study those, within that community, they did have a teaching that you love the brothers and sisters, but you are to hate the outsider. That's how tight their community was. But the Bible never says that. But a, a, lot of, a lot of Jewish people, honestly, practically lived that way. Anybody who was Gentile, anybody who was non-Jewish, their love for one another, their allegiance and loyalty to one another was so great that it kind of felt like they hated everybody else. That's just the truth. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, there's what theologians call common grace. God has common grace for both believers and non-believers. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Now listen, listen. 
I hope you know this, but in case you don't, even the best of Christians is gonna have enemies. Hope you know that. They didn't try to get enemies. They didn't try to cultivate enemies. They, they didn't try to say, I'm, I'm gonna make some enemies. They never did that. But it might be an ex-spouse. It might be a creditor. It might be a former employee or employer. It might be an irate competitor who wants to discredit you. It might be a complete misunderstanding that created an enemy, but even the best disciples of Jesus have some enemies. It might even be your family members. And you've tried, but there seems to be nothing you can do about it. Remember this, that we are to do our best to live at peace with people, but not everybody wants to be at peace. Jesus said, treat even your enemies with compassion. Wow. Now, folks, folks, there, I don't know of any teaching that is more at odds with way the, the way the unbelieving world usually acts than this teaching. We want to lash out at people who are our enemies. We want to wound them the way they're wounding us. We want to trash their reputation the way they're trashing ours. Jesus says, no, they're dupes of Satan. You need to look with compassion on them. There but for the grace of God go you. And so here's the way I seek to treat people who are trashing my reputation, and I know many who have tried to do that. I see them out in public. I go up and smile and shake their hand. How are you doing? How's your family? I go up to people that uh, don't wanna smile at me, and I smile at them anyway and talk back. I'm just... I would recommend you do that. Now, somebody, no, that would be phony. No, that would be obedience is what that would be. There's nothing phony about it. It has nothing to do with the way you feel. You may wanna knock their head off. It has nothing to do with the way you feel, folks. It has to do with obeying Jesus and returning good for evil. Here's the way Paul put it in Romans chapter 12. If your enemy's hungry, feed him. He's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Oh, what a teaching. And then Jesus sums it all up, just no big deal, just hey, the, the bar's not real high here. No, no big deal, but here's what I want you to do. Just, just be perfect. Okay, okay, Jesus, we got it. No big deal, we no, none of us can do that, right? And Jesus knows that none of us can do that. And that's why constantly the Sermon on the Mount throws us back on the grace of God. Sanctified common sense, the whole counsel of God has taught us that the only way we can be right with God is a righteousness not our own. We can't be perfect, but when we have his perfection, his righteousness given to us, then we can be perfect. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So how are we doing living this out? You know, I'm reminded of Jesus, our ultimate example, who while being spat upon and whipped and slapped in the face 
and nailed to an old rugged cross. You know what his attitude was? You know, right? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They're just dupes of Satan. Sinners acting like, that's not a supercilious attitude. That's not an arrogant attitude. That's real. That's just truth. That's reality. And so you live in that truth. That's the kind of compassion and perspective he wants us to have every day, even with the people who are very difficult to love. Wow, Lord, if there was ever a teaching where we need grace, this is it. So we throw ourselves today on your grace. There's not a single person, including the one speaking, who even gets close to living this out with perfection. Oh my goodness, how we need your grace. Thank you that even when we're falling short of these teachings, even when we don't have a spirit of grace like this is recommending, thank you, Lord, that you are there. You're still working with us. You don't give up on us. Your grace is truly amazing. And thank you, Lord, that you actually use our lives to make a difference in this world. So Father, I I, I pray in these moments for those who We're grappling with a real-life situation. That's many people right now. A real-life situation where there are folks in their life that are so difficult to get along with, making life, in many cases, miserable. Lord, I pray for that sanctified common sense that all the brothers and sisters of grace would know exactly what their next step should be, that you would guide us by your Spirit And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen, amen.